before you humbly tonight, and we ask that you would bless our time. God, I'm keenly, keenly aware that uh, of the truth that if the Holy Spirit is not um, in this place and guiding our words and guiding our thoughts, that that we walk away from this study with nothing. Uh, we proclaim that to proclaim that we're completely dependent upon you. We're completely dependent upon the work of the Spirit to be able to walk away from this study uh, better understanding what love is, to do with each other. And without the Spirit, if the Spirit was to take uh, its hand off of this um, study, then we walk away uh, without any, not being any better equipped for the work of ministry than we were when we got here. And so, God, I beg you to, uh, uh, to bless us, to encourage us, so that we might better glorify you. Uh, God, tonight we, have, we are dealing with some very weighty things as far as love is concerned and marriage and the church, and we'll be here for the next few weeks. And so, I, I desperately want us to be more informed but I want that knowledge to make that long journey from our heads to our hearts as well so that we are not just walking around with knowledge that could deceive us, but that we're walking around with knowledge that informs us so that we might better glorify you in lives surrendered to your will and lives that have died to their own will. God, I am completely intimidated about... Uh, the topic tonight and looking at love and looking at marriage. I, I am so aware of my frailties and my failures and my lack of what is needed uh, to be able to, to be a husband rightly, uh, how I'm so short-sighted sometimes. I'm so aware of that, and I confess that publicly tonight, uh, and I beg you by the work of your Spirit to inform us uh, according to the Spirit by your Word, which is perfect. Um, God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reading in uh, uh, Jerry Bridges' book, uh, uh, Respectable Sins. Uh, he, he asked the question, if God was to take his hand off, if the Holy Spirit was to take his hand off of your ministry, what would happen? Would it crumble immediately and fall on its face? Or would it be a couple years before you realize, hey, where did the Holy Spirit go? And I've been thinking about that from a ministerial standpoint, but I've also been thinking about it from a personal standpoint for each of us. If the Holy Spirit takes his hand off of our lives, do we notice immediately? Are we that dependent on the Spirit that we would have an immediate, there would be an immediate change in us where we're like, oh, something's not right. I'm being totally dependent upon myself and not on the work of the Spirit. Would we notice it quickly or would we be years without the Spirit before we realized something's terribly wrong here. And so I say that to, because I, and the things that we're going to look at tonight, I do not have the eloquence, the ability, the strategy, the wherewithal, the gall. I don't have anything that it takes to be able to convince you of these things that we're looking at tonight. So we're totally dependent upon the Spirit as we should be in all things. And so I want to bring that to your attention because we're talking about love, we're talking about marriage, we're talking about the church, very, very weighty matters that have had so much uh, controversy over the course of history on the way that cultures define it. 
And if we allow God to define it, it will only be by the work of the Spirit that we can submit to it tonight. And so I want to put that before y'all before we even dive into the study. And now we dive into the study. Turn to Genesis 24. This is our seventh week in Genesis 24. Over the course of 12 weeks. Again, this is our seventh week in Genesis 24 over the course of 12 weeks. And it's 67 verses of just jam-packed craziness where we engage things that are totally uncultural to us and things that could very well be confusing. And I'm sorry, maybe this is our sixth week. Yeah, this is our sixth week in like 11 or 12 weeks. And so uh, there's a lot of things that we're going to repeat. There's a lot of things that we're going to engage multiple times and re-engage the next week and re-engage the next week. And I want you all to be patient in that because we're going to do it a lot. And you hear it a lot from the pulpit as well. And I, and I wanted to remind you all that in 2 Peter 1.13, go ahead and keep your finger in Genesis 24. Turn over to 2 Peter 1.13. 2 Peter 1.13, this letter from Peter, and he says in verse 13, or verse 12, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. He's been talking about your election and making it sure and doing everything you can and all of your power to make sure that you are living according to what God has, the call that God has placed on your life. And he says, because of this, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. I'm not just going to tell you once, but we're going to say it again, we're going to say it again, and we're going to say it again, because we all know that we're hard-hearted, thick-skulled people who desperately need to be reminded of even the most obvious things over and over and over. I, I don't know how many times that someone has had this huge problem or this calamity in life, and they, they come for counsel, and you say, have, have, you, have you prayed about it? I didn't think of that. Like, that's the most obvious. Uh, are you going to pray about that? Let me go pray about it, and I'll come back. But we need to be reminded of these things. And here he says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Though you know them, though you're established, I'm still going to remind you. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, because one day we'll put off these bodies. Turn over to Hebrews 10.24. Hebrews 10.24 says, start in 23, And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Sometimes we can form the habit of not meeting with each other and being stirred up the way of reminder. But it says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some have the, as, as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're preparing for something. We're preparing for something that's going to happen in the future. And I was reminded this week of this because I, I, I keep going back and my notes for this chapter just keep growing because I've taught once out of the last five weeks. This is the second week out of six. And so I sit in the weeks that I'm not teaching and I just keep taking notes and I keep taking notes. And I was like, well, maybe I'll just write a little book pamphlet and just hand it to them and we'll just move on to chapter 25 because there's so much here. But I think it's by God's design that we've been, the throttle's been taken back and we're having to look at this. But I was kind of 
Like, okay, I feel like we're doing the same stuff. Yes, pay attention to God in the midst of the details. Worship God in the midst of the details. Share the details with other people so that they can worship God in a like manner. Yes, Eleazar was a diligent and quiet servant. We need to see that. Yes, God's hand was all over the selection of Rebecca for Isaac. It was all to make Abraham's name great. We've heard this a bajillion times, and we need to hear it again. And I was reminded of that this week because we just started feeding Olivia, our youngest daughter, who's like six months old, about six and a half months old, the like pureed food, like the vegetables and sweet potatoes. Like she's been just on milk this whole time. We tried the rice cereal thing and the, the pureed food is now what we're on. And I thought about this when that happened with Ella, our daughter who's two years old. And I haven't thought about it since then, but as I was feeding her, I was reminded of what we're doing. And what we're doing is the spoon swipe. Are we familiar with the spoon swipe? What happens when you stick pureed sweet potatoes in a six-month-old mouth, what happens? They swallow some, and they spit out the other. What do you do? You spoon swipe it, and you put it back in so that they make sure they get fed. And then what do they do on the next bite? And it's the same thing. And so that's how it is when we're going to the Word. We're taking some in, we're taking some in, and every week inevitably, and, and we get together again, and we spoon swipe each other, and we give them give what we didn't get on the first try, and then the next week we do the same thing, and we spoon swipe each other, and we stir one another up, by way of reminder to good works and love. That's what we're doing. So four points that we came to last week. What were those four controversial things we talked about last week? Not last week, two weeks ago. The last time we met, whenever that was, 1962, what did we talk about those four points that were very controversial? Arranged marriages. Okay, what, did we, what, what came up on that? What is it not? It is not a cruel institution that always existed to make the lives miserable of two young people who were actually, she was in love with the stable boy, not him, you know, that whole thing. That's not what it was. However, one of the things we saw, what we considered was what we see now is the perverted form of the original thing. Like what fallen man has done with something that God used in Genesis 24 as a means to do something great. See, we, we see it as, we see this perverted form of it. So to have understanding, we have to go back, way back, to try and see what the, the origin of the thing is so that we can see the beauty that was in it. And what we saw was it was really a means by which a mother and a father were trying to be responsible and guard their family from being unequally yoked with another family. Is there anything we can do to this or do I need to change the mic? Okay. Uh, and so a means by which they, they're not going to, open their doors to the, you know, pagan worship, polytheistic worship practices, and no, you can't marry a Canaanite just because you think she's hot. There's more to it than that. Like that kind of thing. It's, it's, a, it's this involvement. What, what were the other three things? We did, yeah, we talked about that in, in the midst of all the other stuff. And then uh, what were the two things that were similar having to do with money and marriage? Dowry. Dowry and bride price. Now, we, what we saw was that in the original form, dowry was something that was given from one family to the next as keeping in, in view the future generations and, and their well-being so that the family can flourish and fill the earth with the glory of God. And so it's this, not, it's not generational selfishness, but rather I want to make sure they're taken care of. And bride price was the same thing. Bride price was not something that you, it, brides are not livestock. You're not buying a bride for a certain amount so that you can have the best bride as opposed to the guy next door who had less money and has an uglier bride. 
That's not what this is. They're not livestock, but rather what it was was validating her worth rather than invalidating it because the bride would play a role in the family, not just sit around and eat their food and mooch off of them, but they would do something. And there was a way to say, my family is, is being yoked with your family and I want to look out for your family. And so here's, here's some, some, you know, some goods and some, some riches and whatever else to, to validate the worth of this woman that I'm marrying who's going to leave and cleave here and there's an empty place in your home, but I want to validate her worth and not invalidate it. And so there would be something, for instance, what was Rebecca doing when we met her? She was working. She was drawing water at the well. And so there was a role that was played, and it, was, it had great value to the family. And then polygamy was the really controversial one that we talked about. And the short answer is more mommies equal more babies, which means bigger families. But obviously, um, we don't see much success in the way of uh, polygamy in the word. We see a whole lot of failure in turning from God's design. And so that's a really complicated one. But these were all four points from last week. And we used them to see that this theme through it was the value of the family, the high view of family, the, the view that God in his divine designing of things gives us of family and looking out for family, and taking care of family. And there's things all throughout the scriptures, like talking about widows in 1 Timothy, where it says, if you don't take care of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. Take care of your family. Have a view for family. Don't be selfish in this generation. Look to future generations. Deuteronomy 6 talks about um, telling your children and your grandchildren. And I don't know that it goes much further than that, because not many people have a chance to share more than their grandchildren. But their children are called to share with children, their grandchildren. And so it's this generational view of faithfulness and this high view of family. From the get-go, we need to see that God, as he promised in Genesis 12 two, is making Abraham's name great. One of the means by which he is doing this is the arranged marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. So get the point. God's saying, I'm going to make your name great. And why was he making Abraham's name great? So that Abraham would do what? Say, look at me, I'm Abraham, Father Abraham, I have a song. What? Yeah, to glorify God. People would look at Abraham, his name's great, so that they would see the greatness of God and God's blessing upon his life. God is making Abraham's name great, and one of the means by which he's doing this is the arranged marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. God uses this means because God is all about the family. Family is not a cultural creation. Some would try to explain that away and say that it's just this cultural thing, you know, as, as human beings developed and our minds got more, became, you know, we understood the biology of man and woman, then, then, then we would form these units of tribal things. And get, no, God created this. This is not a cultural thing. Marriage is not a cultural thing. It's created by God. So I think that we should do everything we can to give way to, God, what did you create it for? How does it work? What happens in the hard seasons? What do I do when everything's horrible? What is love? How, how do we make sure that we keep things in the right direction and not just become cultural in the way that our marriage is? So marriage is not a cultural creation. Family is not a cultural creation. It's God's divine design for filling the earth with his glory. Remember, God reminded us in Isaiah 46.10 that he will accomplish all his purpose. He says, there's no one like me. There's not another like me. I will accomplish all my purpose. His purpose is to fill the earth with his glory. He created man and woman as image bearers who are called to go forth, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth so that the earth can be filled with the picture of the glory of God so that people don't look at each other and say, wow, look at how great our culture is. 
but rather look how great God is. And that's his purpose. So your created purpose, your reason for having a borrowed breath on this earth is to glorify God in everything, everything you do. And specifically tonight, what we're looking at is how you do that in the way you love and in the way you are married and in the way family exists and in the impact that has on the church. It all has everything to do with each other. That's what we're looking at tonight. Um, one of the things I realized is as, as I talk about and promote the health of families, sometimes I feel guilty because I know that not everybody is in a healthy family or came from a healthy family or has family that has signs of health. Some of us come from really screwed up backgrounds. It's just the way it is. Some of us are in the storms right now that we can't even explain. They're so crazy. Some of us have seen such differences between this family and this family that it's like maddening and you want to pull your hair out. Some of us have hurdles that we're in the midst of that, um, that we're like, I don't even see how I get over that hurdle. Some of us have backgrounds of all we know is deception and heartache and people turning their backs on us. So I feel guilty talking about promoting the health of the family because it's like, this feels weird. It almost feels like uh, talking about how great your Christmas was in front of someone who had a lousy Christmas by themselves. And it's kind of like, oh yeah, Christmas, sorry, I'm not going to talk about it. Uh, Your Christmas was lousy. That's kind of what it feels like. But as I thought about it, what I realized is that if I keep quiet about the well-being of the family, just because everyone lives in or comes from uh, an unhealthy family, um, it would be like being in the midst of someone who was starving and saying, should we eat in front of them? They've been starving their whole life. Should we eat in front of them? I, I, don't, I don't know if we should eat in front of them because, well, they've been without food and they've been starving their whole life. What's, what do you do in that situation? You give them food, eat, feast, and invite them to the feast. Invite that person to your Christmas. Eat, feast, and offer the food. That's kind of what I feel like we're doing here tonight. Offer the food. Have the person over for Christmas. This is what I hope to do today. The health of the family is of such importance that if you have never experienced it, if you have only experienced heartache and disappointment, I hope that looking at God's design tonight for a flourishing family will be like a great meal for your hungry soul. That's what my hope is. There's some people here who are not married, who maybe will be married one day. This will help you know what to look for. There's some who are married and going through the motions right now, and this will help you to see where does true life come from in a marriage. There's some who are flourishing, and this is a reminder saying, yeah, we're only flourishing because it's God's design. But either way, I hope it's a meal for your hungry soul. That's really what I'm hoping tonight. And we're totally dependent upon the Spirit. In Psalm 127, verse 1 through 2, We read this last week. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives sleep to his beloved. We can go to sleep at night in our houses knowing that the Lord has built this house and this home and this family, but... If God doesn't build it, it's a mess. And if we don't allow him to teach us and show us what the blocks are that build it up, we make a mess of it. We can just be a cultural representation of what culture says marriage and family and church are, and it turns out we're actually whoring ourselves out, for lack of a better term. That's a very strong term, but I use it because of what it says in Exodus 34. 
Turn to Exodus 34, and we're going to ask the question, so what happens if the Lord doesn't build the house? Because here, what I believe has happened is that the Lord has brought Rebekah to Isaac, and he's building that house as he's building the house of Abraham and making his name great so that God would be glorified. I believe that. If anyone in here thinks that they could do a better job of choosing their husband or wife than God could, then you're wrong. Like if, if I were to say, how did your wife come about? How did, how, how did you find your wife? Well, I went and I looked and I found her and I, I picked the right one. I guarantee God does a better job of bringing two people together than two people could ever muster on their own, no matter how many books they've read or how many dating sites they've been to or whatever. God does the best at bringing people together. Unless the Lord builds the house, we build it in vain. Exodus 34, we ask the question, what happens if the Lord doesn't build the house? What happens if we abandon his design and do our own thing and follow our own emotions and our own preferences? What happens there? Uh, will it really look any different? And in Exodus 34, let me turn there. I didn't turn there when I asked you to. In Exodus 34, verses 12 through 16, Ben talked about this on Sunday. He talked about when, uh, when um, uh, Moses was interceding for the people and he just kind of got tired of it. He was like, God, this is ridiculous. I keep interceding for the people and I, 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 I don't have the goods. And it was this reminder that we have from Hebrews that Christ lives to intercede for us. He is our intercessor. He does not tire of it. And it was this beautiful reminder. But what we engaged in the story is the hard-heartedness and foolishness of the human nature when we turn from God and embrace culture, embrace our own ideas, when we're led by our emotions, when we're driven only by our preferences. This is what happens in Exodus 34, verses 12 through 16. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go. He's saying, be careful. Like when you go out into the world, you're a covenant people. The story that you have to tell is not a story of yourself. The story that you have to tell is the story of a people who are being redeemed by God. So we, we exist in covenant as a people, and our story is the story of a people. And he says, when you go out into the world, like this would be to you, when you go to work tomorrow, or when you watch TV tonight, or when you read a magazine about what culture has to say about marriage, take care that you don't turn from God's design and make a covenant with the culture. Take care that you don't turn from what God says is right about marriage and family and church and the existence of people in general and make a covenant with an unbelieving, godless people. Be careful not to do that because it's easier than you think. When you're bombarded daily with what the culture and the world says about what marriage is and what the home should look like and what a husband is and what a wife is, it's easy to make a covenant with that culture not realizing what you've done. It's a slippery slope. So he's saying here, take care when you go into the land that you do not make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land because you're my covenant people and your story is the story of a people being redeemed by the hand of God. Lest it become a snare in your midst. What's a snare? A trap. Okay. You're falling into a trap if you're making a covenant with the culture and the world and you're turning from God. It's a trap. <laughs> Heads up, it's not going to work out well. It's a trap. It's a snare. It's a slippery slope. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other God. For the Lord whose name is Jealous 
is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And let's look at what happens. We're answering the question, what happens if the Lord doesn't build the house? What happens if we do our own thing or engage the culture only and turn from God's design? Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you're invited, you eat of, this, of his sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. What happens when we disregard God's design and we embrace the design of the world and the culture and what it says about marriage and what it says about a home and what it says about being a wife, what it says about being a husband, is we can find ourselves disregarding the God whose name is Jealous because he is a jealous God. It's a part of his name, Jealous. We can disregard him And when we're invited to the feast to whore after their gods, we make ourselves whores and we whore after their gods. And then what happens in a like manner? We marry our sons off to the daughters and our daughters off to the sons and then they go to their homes and the the spouse that's been married off and unequally yoked whores after their god. And then what do our sons and daughters do? They follow suit and whore after the gods as well. This is a very terrifying picture of what happens if the Lord does not build the house. We end up whoring ourselves out to the world and to things that are godless and to things that are against what our jealous God makes very clear right here is not his design. So we have to be careful and say, what is it to love as the love as the Lord loves and to live in marriage and with families and as the church as the Lord does, as the Lord tells us to. So What I'm getting at in this really descriptive example that you may have to explain to your kids afterwards and be mad at me is that uh, we cannot let culture define love and family and marriage for us. If we do, we do what this says. So we should care about if the family flourishes. We should care. We should give a rip about what happens with families. We should have a burden for not just the families here, but for the families that exist in this community when we're called to go and make disciples uh, and here and here and here in your hometown and towns and the whole world, it's not an individualistic endeavor. It's a view of families. We, one of the things that is commonly understood as you hear the preaching from the pulpit here is that we want to equip shepherds to lead their families. We want people to know what it likes, what it's like to submit to God's design and, and do what the scriptures say. And so we should be about families. We should care about if the family flourishes and we should consider how we are to rightly flourish. That's what we're going to talk about now. How? How do you rightly flourish by God's standard and not the cultural standard? So how to flourish. Turn to Ephesians 5. How do we flourish as we're designed to? Because I believe that Isaac and Rebecca, when brought together, were flourishing. I don't, the word love that was used when they loved each other was like, hey, how you doing? And then they went into the tent and they consummated the marriage with physical intimacy and they loved each other. That word indicates a, something that goes on for a long time, not just a temporary sensation. So I believe there's true love there, a lasting love that existed because God brought them together. And so I want to say, how do we flourish as families? How do you flourish as a husband? 
How do you flourish as a wife? How do you flourish as someone who hopes to maybe one day be that? Or how do you flourish in a church where you have maybe a new family that is not like the family that you grew up in where you had a lot of heartache? How do you take that back to your family? These are the things we're going to be engaging in the coming weeks. And right now in Ephesians 5.25, we'll, we'll take step one, and it's, and it's directed to the men at first, and it says, Husbands, and we're not going to go to the second part of the verse. We'll do that in the coming weeks. But tonight we're going to stick with husbands. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The question is, what does that love, what is that? What does that look like? What does that mean? Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's our focus. How do I love like that? How do I go home to my bride, Lindsay, and love her as Christ loved the church. I'm not Christ. How in the world does that happen? We're going to look at that. Ravi Zacharias in this book, which turned out to be a really good book, got a few notes and tabs on it. Um, I, Isaac, take through Becky. He makes this uh, observation. He says this. It's very well worded, so I'm not going to try and outdo him. I just want to quote him. Love is an enormous commitment that will test you at some of your most vulnerable areas of spirituality. He's saying in your areas of spirituality and the things that go on in your life, um, the love that you're going to have in marriage is going to test you in a way that you were not tested when you were sitting by yourself and when you didn't have the responsibilities to go with marriage and when you didn't have the responsibilities to go with family. He says it's an enormous commitment that will test you at some of your most vulnerable areas of spirituality. Lust. I mean, just as I read these, think, have I been tested in this? And you'll probably say yes. Lust, greed, pride. It demands of you the quality of commitment. <laughs> it demands of you, love, demands of you the quality of commitment that Jesus uses in his analogy in his relationship to us. That's the demand. When it says, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, the demand there is the, the, uh, the quality of commitment that Jesus uses in the way that he relates to us as the bride, the church, the bride of Christ. Love is as much a question of the will. This is where we're landing tonight. It gets crazy. Love is as much a question of the will as it is the emotion. And if you will to love somebody, you can that's probably the most uncultural statement I've made on a Wednesday night yet. If you will to love your spouse, you can. And I believe it to be biblical. And we're going to talk about why. First, how does our culture generally define love? Looks, feeling, even more than a feeling, depending on what you're listening to. Do what? Yes, yeah, so what someone does for you, okay? Love is blank, according to the culture. Blind. blind. Love is blind. There may be more truth. I don't know. What else? How can you tell if you love someone from a cultural standpoint? You just get that feeling. All of I can't even trip over my words. I'm around them. Yeah. Um, how do you keep love burning? The coals of love burning, according to the cultural standard. Date nights and diamonds. That's right. Date nights and diamonds. Date nights are good. Diamonds are great too. Um, but they are not the means by which you keep the coals of love burning. This coal, I think one diamond is good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to that. One diamond. We're going to stick with that. That's a better thing because I don't set myself up for failure in the future. Um, uh, 
Yeah, the, this, the culture defines love very differently than what we see here. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, a picture of sacrifice. Um, love is as, an, as an act of the will. What would happen if I go up to a stranger and say, I really have to work at loving my wife. I really got to work at it. In fact, I told Lindsay, I was going to share with y'all tonight, I want y'all to know, I really have to work at loving my wife. I I really got to work. It's hard. It's really hard. There's something inside of you that's like, he shouldn't be saying that. He should say how easy it is because she's so lovable. And then you're so lovable and she loves you back and it's this thing that just happens and you don't even have to work at it because it's so beautiful. No. Love's an act of the will as much as it is a stirring of the emotions. Love's an act of the will. We, that is so very uncultural. Again, I, that may be the most uncultural thing I've said on a Wednesday night yet. I, I, an example of this is um, I went to do a toast at my brother's rehearsal dinner, and I have this, this issue, personal issue, where if it's not a setting like this, like here, I'm not all freaked out because I'm teaching Genesis, I've studied Genesis, and you guys are here to, to hear about Genesis, Right? There's no misconceptions about what is to be said. I'm going to talk about Genesis and the Bible and Jesus, and that's not all that crazy. But in a setting where it's like off the cuff, like, hey, it's a, it's a rehearsal dinner and you're going to make a toast, I freak out. I just start, my hands are, are, are sweating and my mouth is dry, and I'm, and I'm sitting there and I'm going, okay, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say this, and I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to, and I'm going to bring it together with this, and then I'm going to bring this back to the front, and I'm going to wrap it, and I'm going to put it in a bow, and I'm going to present it to the people, and it's going to be great. But then I get up, and that just doesn't happen, and I stumble over my words. Well, this is my brother's rehearsal dinner less than a year ago. And I've been studying this stuff for a long time, and Ephesians 5 has been working me over because I'm like, how do I love my wife as Christ loved the church? That's a huge call. And I get up, and I'm talking about, you know, um, we want you to know we love you, and we will be there for you. And, I, and, I, and I'm trying to be as sincere and authentic as I can be. And I say, and I, your days ahead, you've got, you've got some hurdles ahead. And I said, Cody, you're my brother, and you're called to love your wife as Christ loved the church, and that's hard. And the place erupted in laughter. <laughs> laughter, like <laughs> uncomfortable laughter, but laughter nonetheless. And then everybody looked at my wife with a look of sorrow, like, I'm so sorry he said that. He so should not have said that. <laughs> you know, and it's this uncomfortable thing. And, and I'm, I didn't get it at first. I'm like totally disconnected from the whole room. They're laughing, and I was like, it's hard. And then I just put my foot in my mouth. I was like, no, really, he died. And everyone's like, ha, ha, see, you sit down and shut up. This is uncomfortable. We're at a rehearsal dinner, and it's supposed to be easy to love. Don't tell them they have hard days ahead of them. Just tell them, have fun on your honeymoon. You know, and it was uncomfortable. It was one of the most uncomfortable moments of my life, and I was doing my best to be sincere. But why was it uncomfortable? Because it's uncultural to get up and say in front of a room full of people, you have to work hard at loving your wife. It's hard work. That's so bizarre to us. The will to love is something that is put far on the back burner because we so depend on the stirring of emotions that that person can create in us. And this will to love is something that's oftentimes overlooked. To the wives, that Ephesians 5 is to the husbands. To the wives, I'm going to tell you this, and I want you all to just have this on your radar. I'm just going to state it, and we'll come back to it later. And don't even turn there. I'll read it to you. 
And you'll, but you can turn to there later so you know that I'm not lying. Titus 2, 3, 3 through 4. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. And get this. Older women, they are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Train. Older women, train. What's another way to say train? What? Force. Teach. You ever seen someone who's getting some hard training? Like you, you, they're getting pushed beyond what is their natural ability. I want you to pull a hamstring on this. I want you to hurt yourself so that you can grow back stronger. This is going to hurt. You may roll an ankle. You may break a leg. You may have to sit on the pitch for a while. Then jump back in when you're, when you're better. Train them to love who? Husbands and their children. Isn't it supposed to be easy? Have you ever considered, and I'm going to pose this question, keep it on your radar, we'll come back to it later. Have you ever considered that within the community of believers, you, wife, could be trained to love your husband and your children? Have you ever considered that? That within the community of believers, you could be trained by another sinner to love your husband and children? To the husbands, we consider Jesus' love in Ephesians 5. Husbands, I'm going to pose the question. Keep it on your radar. We'll come back to it. Have we ever earned the love of Jesus? Have we ever earned it? Could we ever earn it? Have we ever done anything to make Jesus' heart go pitter-patter in a way different than it did the first day he met us? Is that even possible? No. He wills to love us because we cannot earn it. Now, I want to be careful because there's a lot in Scripture, especially Song of Solomon, about passion and emotion. So I don't want this to sound like you are robots and you will love. And I don't even care if you like it because there's no emotion in it. No, there's a balance of passion and emotion that is very, very real. If you've ever read through Song of Solomon, there is some passion and crazy emotion. Like, girl, your hair and your, your teeth is like the teeth of horse and the flock of goats. And it's just weird. It's like this passion I don't even get. It's like your mane like a horse and a lion. I don't even know. It's crazy. But there's passion. So I don't want to paint a picture like there's no passion in love. Don't trust your emotions. There's no emotion. There's no passion. It's only a will to love. There is both. There must be a balance. But what I would offer is that you are very limited in the emotion and passions if the will to love is not very high. Meaning, I don't think that your emotion and passion and the love of marriage will soar higher than the will to love will. I think that the emotions and passions are dependent upon your will to love. And the stronger the will to love through the hardest times, the more that that will pull up and, and speak to and inform the passion and the emotion rightly within marriage. There is a balance. It is not one without the other. It's been said that uh, uh, without the will, marriage is a mockery, and without the emotion, it is a drudgery. You need both. Without the will, it's just a mockery. You're going through this emotional roller coaster that's stupid. Without the uh, emotion, it's just a drudgery because you're just a robot. I will to love you even though I hate you. There's got to be two things. You need both. So love your wives as Christ loved the church. Here we see the interaction, the intersection of marriage and church. And this is something we're going to be coming back to in the coming weeks. We see this intersection between marriage and church. They have everything to do with each other. Everything. 
As I'm studying the history of marriage, I have been overwhelmed at how for the majority of recorded history, marriage has been all about the family. And it's really only up until the last few hundred years that we see so many young adults who have absolutely zero regard for what their parents think about whom they should marry. That was not a normal thing for all of history. Here, it's like, who cares what mom and dad say? I'm going to marry who I'm going to marry. There's pretty much zero regard. It started out as less regard. But as the culture influenced the institution of marriage, it turned into practically zero regard from what I can observe from studying the history of it. Uh, It's been really clearly portrayed in the arts. Uh, In the 1500s, the success of Romeo and Juliet was huge. Our kids still study it at school because of its success. In our movies, we practically deify the young man who is willing to abandon his family and his friends for the sake of getting the girl. That is a theme in so many movies that we love to watch. I've got romantic movies that I'll only watch with my wife because I'm a guy and you don't watch those alone. But I'll watch with my wife. But a lot of those movies are like this guy, he abandons his family and he turns on his friends because he loves the girl and he gets the girl. Goodwill hunting. At the end of that movie, he says, went to see about a girl. And he, he backed out on his friends on something and, and you know, family was already a thing in the, in, the, in the back burner. And we're just like, yeah, man, you go get that girl. That's so good. We deify the guy who will do that. We deify the girl who will do that, who will reject the prince because she's so in love with the stable boy, the poor stable boy. It's, it is like this, it's this caricature that is very easily seen in the arts. Today, within the family, there's very little, mom and dad, what do you think? There's not a whole lot of that. Mom and dad, what do you think about this guy or this girl? What are your thoughts? What are your observations that you've made about our dating relationship? There's very little of that. And there's even less, mom and dad, can you help me look for the right person? That's like a cultural anomaly. That doesn't happen anymore, hardly at all. There may be a few, you know, rare instances where I've heard stories about people, uh, young people who care about what their parents think, but in majority, There's very little, what do you think? And there's even less, can you help me to find the right person? Usually, usually it's mom and dad, this is who I love and who I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. And if you don't like them, I may be briefly saddened, but my decision will remain unaffected. And you make the decision about if you want to be a part of our life. That's normally what you hear. That's the norm, the cultural norm. If when my daughter gets to marrying age, 37, 38, if I were to suggest her to consider a young man whom I respected and knew and whose family I was familiar with and say, honey, have you considered this young man? He comes from a great family. He's, he's got great morals. And most importantly, he loves Jesus with all his heart. And he's honest. And I can see it because he loves Jesus with all his heart. And I think he will lead you. If I did that, I would be considered by most of society and most church people to be meddling, having clearly crossed a line that seemed obvious to everyone else. Keep your mouth shut, Dad. It's not your business. I would be considered meddling at that point by most of culture and a lot of church people. In fact, in most cases, if a father were to mention a young man's name, the mere mentioning would be grounds for immediate disqualification. I like Jim. Jim's out. Done. 
Yeah, he's a great guy. My dad likes him. There ain't no way I'm going down that road. Usually the mere mentioning is a disqualification. And on the flip side, how many young men do you know who really give a rip about what the dad thinks? Really? I mean, at most, usually what I see is a guy will date a girl, not meet her family, spend lots of time with her, give too much of himself away, take too much of her, um, and then end up in a place where he loves her, he puts a ring on the finger, and then he travels with her to her parents' house and says, sir, uh, put a ring on your daughter's finger, I want to marry her, are you okay with that? Maybe we can have lunch and talk about it. In fact, if a guy does that, it's usually considered really noble because it's not normal. Um, I know when I asked Lindsay to marry me, when I wanted to ask her, uh, I called her dad, and uh, I was no shining example of, of the way it should be done. I didn't have much contact with him, and I called him. I was like, hey, uh, sir, I'd, I'd like to come and talk to you, maybe take you to lunch. And he's like, oh, okay, well, uh, let's look at our schedules. And after 10 minutes of schedules not lining up, well, I'm really busy. Well, this is important. I'm really, that's uh, kind of important, sir. Uh, can you maybe break that? No. What about you? Can, uh, I can't do that either, sir. Uh, let's, uh, and he finally goes, what do you want to talk about? I said, I want to marry your daughter. He said, okay. I just wanted to be happy. And that was really the extent of the conversation. It was not this shining beacon example, but it was pretty normal. The reason that most men don't care about what dad thinks is because it's completely uncultural to do so. It's a very uncultural thing for a young man to say, I care about what you think, sir, and I want to make sure that you know that I'm going to lead her the right way in the fear of the Lord, and we're going to submit our, our two wills to the will of the Lord, and our home is going to be a home that the Lord builds. That's very uncultural, so it's not very popular. And this strain dynamic is the very reason that so many fathers hate the idea of their little girls getting married. Hate it. I hate it. I do, because they have no say. Hopefully, I'll have some say. Hopefully, she'll listen to this lesson. There was a time when fathers were filled with real joy at the thought of their daughters marrying the right guy. There was a time when that was very normal. Just real joy. Man, she's marrying the right guy. But now there is such uncertainty as to whether the guy is right or wrong that there's sadness, stress, and regret because rather than gaining a son, they truly feel like they're losing a daughter. That's what they feel like. I'm not gaining a son, I'm losing a daughter. In fact, my father tells me a story about when he went to ask my grandparents for their blessing in marrying my mother. He goes in, after spilling his guts, confessing his love, and doing his best to convince them of his love for my mother, my grandmother stood up, looked him straight in the eye and said, I don't want to lose my only daughter, and I dang sure don't need another son. And she turned around and walked out of the room, just left. I don't want to lose my only daughter, and I dang sure don't need another son. That was her response. Um, uh, four Christmases later, she apologized for maybe being wrong, though. So, so there was something beautiful in that. Um, but what I'm getting at is that this marriage and church parallel is very real. And in Ephesians 5, husbands are commissioned to love their wives as Christ loved the church. So marriage between a man and a woman is the very thing that God designed to communicate the relationship that exists between Christ and the church. So why flourish? Because marriage and the church and the family are not separate spheres of life. They're not these, I don't know, it's not family, marriage, church. They're not separate spheres. You are a people in a story of a people who are called to glorify God in all things. There cannot ever be a healthy church made up of unhealthy families. 
It's impossible for that to exist. We have the most unhealthy families you've ever seen, but our church is doing great. That doesn't even make sense. It's illogical. It's unreasonable. It doesn't add up. So interestingly, here's the connection I want you all to see as we bring things to a close tonight. As church has become less about the family and more about the individual, marriage has followed suit and has become less about the family and more about the individual. Hear that again. This is a really important point. One of the things that we have seen in previous years is church becoming so much about the individual and this individual identity and communication and expression. I am me and this is I. And the Lord, the Lord spoke to me this way rather than us this way. And as church has become less about the family and more about the individual, I believe that marriage has followed suit and become less about the family and more about the individual. And one of the ways that I want us to try and define this is how would you define an unhappy individualistic spouse? What are some signs of, and just because you speak doesn't mean that your spouse is that, okay? (laughs) Be careful there. Uh, What are some signs of an unhappy and individualistic spouse? Quiet, don't talk to you. Selfishness? I'm kind of busy here working. Busy here working. I got my own thing going, okay? What is their response to the other spouse oftentimes? An unhappy, individualistic spouse. Leave me alone. What about their, what is their approach to the children a lot of times if they're an unhappy, individualistic person? Your problem. Your problem, yeah. 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 My way or no way. Yeah, that's that selfishness that, that will show its ugly face. Now tell me this. How would you define an unhappy, individualistic church member? Stop coming. What? Sporadic. Yeah, this isn't what I need. But wait, how would you define the unhappy individualistic spouse? That's just not ministering to my needs. Okay, what are some other things? Unhappy individualistic church member. We're just not seeing things eye to eye. And the result is what? I'm out. This is very sobering. Point. One of the new um, fads, cultural whatever things that are, have shown up is a number of families that all the, the, empty nest, the empty nesters where the kids are finally out of the house, you know, after 20 some odd years, 30 years of having the focus on the kids and getting to these soccer games and this school play and making sure we get the kids in the right place and making sure we put on our happy faces for the kids. Once all the kids are off at college and there's an empty home, there's this new theme of people divorcing after 35 years of marriage. Because they look at each other and they say, I don't even know what to do with myself. I don't even know who you are. I, I don't even know what to do. We're just sitting in the same, I don't even know what to say because our whole life has only been about the kids. Very similar thing. You come, a lot of people will choose a church depending on the kids program. Now, is it important to have a good program for children so that they're raised in the faith? Absolutely. That's not a non-issue. But it can't be the only issue. It's, this is very sobering because similar words have been spoken by unhappy individualistic spouses and unhappy individualistic church members, and those words are, you're not making me happy, so I'm going to go look elsewhere. It's very sobering. It's very real, very heartbreaking. You're not making me happy, so I'm going to go look elsewhere. And it really comes down to the difference between, and we'll close with this, 
this just became like an eight-week study rather than whatever. But you're not making me happy, so I'm going to go look somewhere else. This existence in marriage and church and family is so intertwined. And it's interesting. I'll share this, and then we'll talk more about it next week because I don't want to keep the kids real late tonight. Um, is uh, one of the things that you'll see when you go to counseling, I even read it in this book, and I have heard it before, and it was just a great point, is that um, conflict resolution in marriage, one of the great things that can happen, if there's a conflict and you want to resolve that in a marriage and there's a tension between a husband and a wife, one of the things that, the, that a question will be brought up from an outside source usually, or if you know this, you can ask it in your own marriage when y'all are, there's tension between the two of you, is, is this a matter of the issue or is this a matter of my disposition? Meaning, it, it, are we really talking about the issue at hand? Or are we, is there a difference between us and are we at odds with each other because of my disposition or your disposition to this issue? It's, it's the difference between conviction and preference. Like, we're going to Chili's. I want to go to Applebee's. Well, I want to go to Chili's. Well, we're going to Applebee's. Well, I don't like Applebee's. We're going to go to Chili's. And there's this riff and there's this tension between two people. We have, I've not had that argument. You... you <laughs> Uh, there's this rift between these two people in a marriage, and the rift really exists because of a disposition or a preference. And so you can ask, is there, is there a tension between us because of the real issue? I mean, is Chili's really that superior to Applebee's? Or is it just our preference that is causing the difference? And a lot of times I would say, husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church, and go to Chili's. I mean, just, just, just that's not a big deal. Easy solution. Now, there's other issues where that's not the case, where it's a, it's a weightier issue, and there may be a, a time where the wife needs to submit to that husband and follow his authority as he makes a decision for the family. But there's this deal where these rifts can exist, and if you're unhappy and individualistic, you don't care about the actual issue. You care about your disposition and your preference to the issue rather than what's actually going on. It's the same thing in churches. A wise person, before they leave a church, will say, am I leaving because of my preference or am I leaving because of conviction? Do I really believe that what's going on here is against the will of God or am I leaving because I'm mad at the color of carpet that was chosen? Am I leaving because I really believe that God is being misrepresented and his truth is being mishandled and there is real issues here or am I believing because I believe that we should have painted the walls white? There have been so many divisions over the years in churches, over issues of preference that have nothing to do with the actual issue, that have nothing to do with the truth and how it's handled. Now, someone can just be a jerk and not take anyone, like, there can be a pastor who just says, I don't care what anyone thinks, and he can just disjoin everything by not taking people's opinions and thoughts and preferences into account. But the point is, is that when there's tension in a marital relationship or in a relationship between someone who is unhappy in a church, they can show whether they're being individualistic and selfish and how they answer the question, is this really an issue of, the, is this the issue? Is, this, is there a problem here from a truth standpoint? Is God being misrepresented? Is truth being mishandled? Or is this just my opinion and my preference? And if we search really hard, I think that we will find out that so much of our, the way we see things has to do with our opinion and our preference, and we could possibly lean more in a certain direction to accommodate the well-being of everybody, not just ourselves. 
I've realized this in so many different areas, and I've realized it in large part because I live in a community where we have almost 100 churches and church buildings, and it's this really disjointed, divided community, and it exists because people do not know how to have different beliefs within the same faith. Is it really the faith that's in question, or is it your belief within the same faith? And a lot of times, the different belief within the same faith is just a difference of preference rather than a matter of truth being totally misrepresented and mishandled and God being... uh, uh, just um, mis- uh, um, turned from. So I say all that, and we'll get back to that next week, and that consider that this week in, in your marriage, in your homes, in the church. You know, these differences that I have with people, this baggage that I'm carrying around, sometimes bitterness can become what Scripture calls a deep, a root that takes, it, 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 it's a, it takes deep root and it sprouts up and it defiles many people. Bitterness doesn't just affect you. It affects everyone you come in contact with, according to the Hebrews. And so, Ask that question, am I loving rightly? Am I loving sacrificially? Because to love sacrificially is not to shelve the truth for someone's happiness. To love sacrificially is to say, I prefer this, but I'll do this for the good of the family, for the good of the church even. Kind of like Christ in the garden saying, God, if this cup can pass from me, let it be, but your will be done. That's sacrificial love. That's the example of sacrifice that we're giving and that he went to the cross when he would have preferred not to, but he did. He said, Lord, let this cup pass from me, but he went, and that's sacrificial. And so bring your questions next week. We don't have a lot of time for them tonight, praise the Lord. And, uh, and we will engage them and we'll look at all this because it is such a weird issue. It's so intimidating to talk about what real love is and what the will to love is and sacrificial love and how it exists in marriage and the church and the family. And it's just this beautiful swirling and mixing of this thing that is not separate spheres of life. So let's pray, and I'll, I'll hang around if anyone has questions and wants to talk afterwards. God, you're very good to us. We are very stubborn and hard-hearted people. Uh, even as I speak these things, I'm so aware of the things that I, that I have an issue with that are maybe in large part a deal of preference and not conviction. But I pray that we would hold fast to our convictions. I do pray that, that we would study the word diligently and be teachable and be held accountable according to the truth that you've put forth. But I pray that if there are issues where we can seek to, to sacrifice and to serve sacrificially and to do love and love a body for the good of the church and for the good of the family, maybe just in its difference to our preference, I pray that we would wholeheartedly do that. I pray that we would follow the example that Christ has given us. So I pray specifically tonight for husbands. We'll talk more about wives and that submissiveness uh, that Scripture indicates as a part of the love that they show. Uh, but I pray that husbands would love their wives as Christ loved the church this week. I pray that we would be quickened to a life of sacrifice. And I pray that we would be willing to shelve our independence and our preference so that we might better serve our wives and love the church and set an example for the world as they look on and know you through the love that we have for each other. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.